0: My name is Bill Newton. I'm currently the the youth pastor at First Baptist Church in Hot Springs. I've been doing youth ministry almost 20 years. Um, it'll be uh, I'm, I'm getting close to knocking on 20 years. Both started as a volunteer, and then from there, God called me into full time vocational ministry where I serve now. And then about mm, 12 or 15 years ago, God really began developing within me a passion for a thing called apologetics, which is just basically the idea of knowing what we believe as Christians. I was in the ministry as a youth pastor, but there were a whole lot of things like I didn't understand about the Christian faith, even though I had. grown up in church because it wasn't until I got in college that God really got a hold of my heart. And so I became very passionate about following Jesus. And so I went through a a time of doubt, which is not bad. I get very excited actually when people go through times of doubt because it shows that they're beginning to own their faith and ask some real questions, which I think is great. And so even as a youth pastor, I went through a time of of questions, not is this real, but why do I believe this is real? And so I literally just made out about 12 or 15 years ago, I was having a prayer time. I was bombarded with all this doubt. And I literally stopped my prayer time. Just felt an attack from the enemy. Opened up the drawer where I, at the desk where I was sitting, pulled out a notepad, and started writing down all these questions that had come to my mind. I've really spent the last 12 or 15 years researching that. I have not made it through all the questions yet. Uh, I hope never to make it all the through all the questions, because questions sometimes lead to more questions, not just answers, but sometimes other questions as well. Uh, and through that, God, as Bobby said, has opened the door over the last 10 to 12 years uh, for me to travel the state and even out-of-state some, teaching on a variety of apologetics topics. Uh, And one of the ones that has been big the last few years in culture has been the abortion discussion uh, and this idea of homosexuality and same-sex attraction. So I appreciate your church being open to uh, addressing this and and some biblical teaching and try to knock down some myths. And when I do this, there's usually a couple of ways I do it. One is I'll just do the teaching time and we'll look at everything and then do a QA and a time. Uh, But I was kind of talking with Bobby and James and a couple of the others and trying to figure out the best way to do this. So I think just for time's sake, here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to talk through some things with you and if at some point something's not Clear or uh, you have a it sparks a question in your mind, just do this right here, okay, everybody do this right here. see everybody has their hand raised, so you 're not going to be the first one, okay, so you 'll be the second one or the third one all right it's okay. This, this needs to be a dialogue to a certain extent. There is way more than we can cover here in 45 minutes. There have, there have been places I've gone, I've spent two hours talking on this and have not got through everything that there is to get through. All right. So I want to be sure tonight what we're going to do is we're going to hit sort of the broad things. A couple things we're going to look at is the worldview that this flows from. What does the Bible actually teach? Because there's a whole lot of misunderstanding about what the Bible does and doesn't say about this. We'll answer the question, can somebody be both, uh, have same sex attraction and be a follower of Christ, uh, and we'll answer the question: Are people born with same-sex attraction or homosexual feelings, or are they uh, made that way, or is it just a flat-out choice? Like somebody wakes up one morning and says, "Yep, this is th- this is the way I want my sexual orientation to go." All right, so those are all the things that we'll cover tonight. Now, what you have is you have a handout. All right. right? we 're going to use this as a guide. The reason I give you this, you may look at this and go that 's a lot of information It is okay that 's the reason that i 'm giving it to you is because I want you to have everything that you need on this topic. We won't cover all this, we'll kind of float through a lot of this, but the reason I gave you this is so that you'll have it and instead of trying to scribble notes, if you're a note taker, there's no fill in the blanks, we'll just walk through it. That way you can just sit back and listen and if you have a question, be engaged as opposed to, what did he say? You know what I'm saying? Okay, especially if you're like me and a fill in the blank person, if you miss a blank, you're stuck right there until you can fill any, anybody fill me on that? All right, thank you for your honesty. I appreciate that. All right, I'm not alone. So that's what we'll go through tonight. So let me open with this. Because there's a huge misunderstanding, both in culture and the church, about the idea of sexual identity. Okay? Um, and I've phrased it a lot of different ways, but I heard a guy this summer uh, who spoke on this, uh, actually at Super Summer, and he phrased it in a very concise way, more concise than I had ever heard it. So this is not on your sheet, so if you are a note taker, this is a great thing to write down, and it's simply this. Inclination does not equal identity. All right, And I'll explain what that means. Inclination does not equal identity. What that means is this. However somebody leans in their sexual orientation, whether it's opposite sex, same sex, or both, what we consider bisexual, okay, that does not determine your identity. Our identity is found in Christ. Our identity is found in who we are in God. There are lots of things that flow from that whether or not I'm married, i got kids, the kind of job I do or the kind of work, the vocation that I have, whether I work inside the home or outside the home, sexual orientation, all those things are pieces of the puzzle of that identity. But who I feel sexually attracted to does not determine my worth and value no matter who I feel sexually attracted to. Are you with me on that? Go like this if you're with me on that. If you're not, go like this and we'll continue down this road because this is important. Because in this culture, we are told a big part of who we are is our sexual identity and our sexual orientation. And if you don't think that's true, watch a lot of the movies and the shows in popular TV and popular culture and listen to a lot of the popular music outside of Christian circles. You will be hard-pressed to find a show aimed at teenagers and young adults nowadays that's not a Christian TV show that doesn't have whoever is dating automatically involved sexually. Right? You'll be hard-pressed Listen to a lot of the popular music on the radio. And I'm not an anti-movie, anti-TV guy. I own more movies than any person should own, and I promise you I own more music than any one human being should own. I love music and movies. But a lot of the message that's there in the popular stuff, the stuff that you see in pop culture, tells you that if you're dating, you need to be sexually active. Why? Because part of who you are, a big part of who you are, is sexuality. And so there's this kind of idea in culture that because you lean a certain way or have a certain inclination sexually, whether it be same sex or opposite sex, that that determines who you are. But the Bible does not say that. The Bible says you are who you are because you're a child of God. And other things flow from that. Okay, So I want to say that from the beginning because sometimes uh, I had a chance to talk with a young lady um, this year at a, at, at a retreat that I was at in the spring. Um, and there was a lot of anger there and a lot of hurt there because they were under the misconception that because, even though they didn't want it, because they felt some same-sex attraction, that they were automatically like, this is who they were and who they had to be, because that's what they had been told in culture. Okay, Somewhere along the way, even among some of the believers that that this particular young lady was entwined with in, in a local church setting, somehow picked up on the idea that your identity was in who you were attracted to physically, not first and foremost as a child of God. All right. So I want to dispel that. Now, let's run through the sheet. A couple things on here. The homosexual agenda flows from a worldview. Basically an atheistic worldview. All right. Atheism being defined as there is no God. So it follows this line of thinking. Number one, if there is no God... And number two, if we are simply evolved, and number three, and if all we have is this life, then how can it be quote-unquote morally wrong to say that homosexuality is unnatural? Number five, therefore, homosexuality is not only acceptable, but normal. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. If number one is right, if number one is right, two, three, four, and five are all correct. But the case I will make is that number one is incorrect, that there is a God and because number one is wrong, everything else that flows from it is wrong. All right? I'm assuming since it's a Sunday night, most everybody here is probably going to be on, on tap with number one being false. But let's look at number two, because here's what's happened over the last couple of decades. This idea that it's okay to be um, homosexually active and that it's no longer a sin it's no longer wrong to do, that there's nothing wrong with that biblically speaking, okay, has begun to invade the church. Some of, some of you who are younger won't remember this, but some my age and older will remember this really became a big deal about 10 or 15 years ago. In church culture, when churches, when certain denominations like the Episcopal Church and some others began having some infighting over whether or not to ordain active homosexual clergy. Okay, so this is when it really began to come to the forefront and people began realizing wait a minute, what we had always traditionally understood as church as a wrong lifestyle to live that lifestyle maybe was no longer wrong. And it sort of started this conversation. As a matter of fact, if you want to look it up, just so you know that I'm telling the truth, um, you can actually get on Amazon.com and type in under the search engine, the Queen James Bible. And there is actually a Bible that you can buy called the Queen James Bible, and the cover of it is just a normal-looking Bible. It's got a white cover, has a cross, but the cross is all rainbow. Okay, It's done in rainbow colors. And this is the description that's on the website. It says, the Queen James Bible is based on the King James Bible, edited to prevent homophobic misinterpretation. Homosexuality was first mentioned, well, let's get that. The Queen James Bible seeks to resolve interpretive ambiguity in the Bible as it pertains to homosexuality. We edited those eight verses in a way that makes homophobic interpretations impossible. It says homosexuality was first mentioned in the Bible in 1946 in the Revised Standard Version. Okay? First of all, if you go back to the original languages, the word is there. the idea is there. It says there's no mention of or reference to homosexuality in any Bible prior to 1946. Only interpretations have been made. We'll get to that in just a minute. There is no uh, anti-LGBT Bible interpretations commonly cite only eight verses in the Bible that they interpret to mean homosexuality is a sin. Eight verses in books of a thousand. So then it says at the bottom, it says you can't choose your sexuality, but you can choose Jesus. Now you can choose your Bible too. All right. And that's how they sell this particular brand. So what they've done is they basically just take And they're right. There's only about eight or so passages that deal with this topic in the Bible. And obviously there's a lot more in the Bible that's dealt with other than that. So what they've done is they've taken the eight verses and they've reinterpreted them to make it so it's very clear that homosexuality is not a sin. And so even within the church at large, this is an idea that has begun to come up. So back on your sheet, let's look at this because this is the line of thinking For some, Number one, if God is love, and number two, and God loves all people, and number three, love is the highest virtue, and number four, how can it be wrong for two people, regardless of gender, to love each other? Therefore, homosexuality is acceptable and even beautiful in God's eyes, or in the eyes of God. So let's walk through this like we did the first one. Number one, if God is love, true or false? Don't be scared. It's not, we're not, they're videoing me, but not you, so it's good, all right? Okay, you're not, we're like, what? Okay, so, Number one, if God is love, is God love? Yes, that's clear in the Bible, right? It says God is love. Number two, and God loves all people. Does God love all people? Yes, can you think of a verse that tells us that? Yeah, John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world. In the Greek, there's the word kosmos, the world, all right? So, and God loves the world. Number three, and, and, and love is the highest virtue, okay? Is love the highest virtue? No. This is where things get caught off. This is where people in the church who are familiar with the Bible begin to change the truths and the reality of Scripture. So number three, if you're a note-taker, that's the one you want to circle. Now, if number three is correct, and love is the highest virtue, then number four, how can it be wrong for two people, regardless of gender to love each other, would be true. And number five, therefore, homosexuality is acceptable and even beautiful in the eyes of God would be true. If number three is true, but number three is not true. Love is not the highest virtue. If you'll remember, in Scripture, what are we called to? We're called to love, but what are we called to do or be more than that? Say it. Holy. It's a perfect song. We didn't work it out we were singing the the opening song that we sang. I was like, that's perfect. That's just the Spirit working stuff out. Because we're called to be holy. That's the call. See, if love was the greatest virtue, there's no need for the cross. Are you with me? Because God's love would overcome his holiness. In other words, God would say, look, I know you've got sin and I'm holy, but my love is greater than my holiness, so therefore, come on in. But it doesn't work that way. God says, I love you greatly, but I can't have anything to do with you because of your sin. It's like oil and water, they can't mix. So I love you, but I've got to have a solution for the unholiness that you've got because of your sin. Yeah, you with me? Okay, so instead of leaving us to die in that, right, you have, for God so loved the world. Why? Because the call, the standard is holiness. The standard is not love. We're called to love, don't get me wrong, but the call to standard is holiness. This is where we've gotten off track. Let me read you just a part of an article. It's a really long article. I found this article last November by this guy named David P. Gushy, and this is how he starts it off. He says, I'm an evangelical minister. I now support the LGBT, that's the lesbian, gay, uh, uh, bisexual, transgender community, the LBG community, and the church should too. Too many Christians stayed silent during the Holocaust and the civil rights movement. And so he begins to track his story of how he went from believing the Bible taught that it was wrong to live that type of lifestyle to saying why it was okay. And this is, this is just one paragraph of what he says, but it's very telling about this argument and this misunderstanding that has happened in Scripture. Here's what he says. He says, for me, the answer to this debate has become simple. There is a sexual minority problem of about 5% of the human population that has received contempt and discrimination for centuries. In other words, he says, part of what has turned this for me is that it, we, we've made a big issue that involves less than 5% of the population. It's not that big a deal. Okay? It's not that big a sin because it's less than 5% of the population. He says, in Christendom, the sexual ethics based in those bible passages metastasized into a hardened attitude against sex and gender, a sexual and gender identity minorities bristling with bullying and violence. This contempt is in the name of God, the most powerful kind that there is in the world. I now believe that the traditional interpretation of the most cited passages is questionable and that all that parsing of Greek verbs has distracted from the primary moral obligation taught by Jesus to love our neighbors as ourselves, especially our most vulnerable neighbors. I also now believe that while any progress toward mere humane treatment of LGBT people is good progress, we need to reconsider the entire body of biblical interpretation and tradition related to this issue. Here's what he says that's very telling. He says, this has, we have distracted attention from the primary moral obligation taught by Jesus. Let me ask you this. Is salvation an issue of morality or an issue of holiness? What is it? It's holiness. If it was morality, then I could work my way to God. I could be good enough to get to God. I wouldn't need Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 where Paul says, it is by grace that you've been saved, not through works, so that no man can boast. But that's in scripture. Why? Because it's a holiness issue. It's not a morality issue. Okay? So this idea that love is the greatest good, and you'll see it all over the place. You see it on social media. For those of you on social media, right? It was huge this summer when the Supreme Court decision came down. What was the hashtag that was going around on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook? It was what? Love wins. Why? Because love is the greatest good. Back in the fall of last year, in the spring of last year on Twitter, there was this huge, massive social media campaign that was pro-LGBT lifestyles. And the hashtag was, love is love. And the idea behind that is, look, love whoever you want. Why? Because love is the greatest good. And love is a great thing. Don't get me wrong. I want to be sure you understand that because I don't ever want anybody to misunderstand. God is love. But you can't discount the holiness of God. All right. So love is not the greatest virtue, but this is how it has sort of snuck into the church. It snuck in the back door through this idea of we're just supposed to love everybody. But what if, we don't have time to break this down, but what if the way you love somebody is not being accepting of their sin, no matter what their sin is, by, by pointing out their sin to them? Instead of saying, yeah, yeah, just go live in your sin, but you'll be separated from God forever, but that's okay, because God just wants you to be happy. What if we actually said, look, I, look, I, I know whatever the sin is is difficult, but this is something that separates you from God, whether it's homosexual sin or heterosexual sin, whether it's lying or cheating, whether it's any sexual sin whatsoever. The ultimate issue is sin, no matter what the sin is. With me, does that make sense? Okay, and so this is, this is the way this has come into the church. So the challenge to this way of thinking, think of it this way. We don't have time to get this. Marriage equality. You heard that? I hear that all the time. That's really a misnomer. People who fought for, for homosexual marriage, they don't really want marriage equality. They just want gay marriage. Like if I was to be on the sidelines beside somebody who was chanting marriage equality, and I went up to, and I wanted to do this, but I, I've never done it, but I went up to him and said, marriage equality, absolutely, because I married, I've been married to my wife for over 19 years, but we got this neighbor lady, and she is good looking, and so I would love to have two wives in my house that look good, not just one. Marriage equality. I would love to see what they would do. I would love to see if they look at me and go, what? Dude, equal marriage for everybody. That includes polygamy. You're talking everybody, all right? If I was a Mormon who believed in polygamy, I would be all up on those sidelines saying, yes, marriage equality, okay? Marriage equality is a little bit of a misnomer. We don't think about that because of the way it's presented, but truthfully, marriage equality is this idea that everybody should be able to marry, and that's what I've got on here for you. If all that is required for love and marriage is consenting adults, then Cara, can a mother marry her son, if love is the greatest good and that's the ultimate goal, can two brothers marry? What about polygamy? Okay. Where do you draw the line? You don't. It starts this kind of slippery slope, at least this idea of marriage equality and the idea that love is the greatest good. So here's the question we want to answer first What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible actually say? About 10 years ago, when this really hit the news, I remember Channel 7i Little Rock you know, the the news picks up on what's big, right? And they try to find lo- local news, tries to pick up local stories. And so I was watching Channel 7 News, and it was when uh, the, the Episcopal debate was really kind of beginning to really flourish, and they were really starting to have some division in that particular denomination over this issue. So Channel 7 News interviewed a guy out of Sherwood. I don't know if you know it, but there's a church in Sherwood called Open Doors Community Church. And That, that is a church that will, if you get on their website, I mean, they say they specifically cater to the LGBT community. Their pastor... All right, has had a long time. At the time I talked to him, he, was in a, he had been in a 14 year relationship with someone of the same sex. Obviously, they weren't married, but they had been living together and living, doing everything just like they were married, except they weren't legally married, right? Okay. Um, and so they, they did this interview with him on the news. And so I got curious because I've never had the chance to know somebody who actually thought living a, practicing a homosexual lifestyle was okay, much less a guy who was the pastor of a church. So a couple days later, after really thinking about it, kind of praying through it was the right thing to do, I looked the guy up and I called him at his church. Now, I didn't tell him I was a pastor or, or, or a minister because I didn't want to scare him away. But I called him. I was able to catch him at the office. And I said, hey, I said I saw you on the news. I said, I'm sure you have gotten lots of hate mail and death threats and all kinds of stuff. I said, I don't, that's not what I'm calling to do. But I said, my understanding of Scripture and the way I was raised was that the Bible teaches that to live such a lifestyle is wrong. So I said, would you take the time to let me ask you some questions and and help because I said I'm just trying to understand your perspective, where you're coming from. All right. That's key when you have a discussion with somebody. You need to find out where they're coming from. So I said, I I just want to know where you're coming from. He said, Absolutely. So for the next thirty minutes, he let me just pepper him with questions. How do you explain Genesis two? What do you do with Genesis 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah? What do you do with Leviticus 18.22? Sounds pretty clear to me. Man shall not lie with man as he lies with a woman, for that is wrong or detestable in the sight of the Lord. Okay, That seems pretty clear to me. What do you do with the Ezekiel passage? What do you do with Romans chapter 1? What do you do with 1 Corinthians 6? What do you do with 1 Timothy 1? What do you do with all this? And so, I mean, he just let me dialogue, and I greatly appreciate it because it gave me huge insight. But this is what I learned. If, if, if I was not well grounded in Scripture... He would have sold me in that 30 minutes that he was right. Because he had thought it through. He had done some what was really bad in Bible interpretation. But if you're not familiar with Bible interpretation, ever been taught how, I mean, he had it down. He would have sold me, just to be honest with you, if I didn't know any better. So one of the things we want to do tonight is I want to, I've got more notes that I can cover with you here. Okay? So instead of focusing on the notes, I'm just going to walk you through a few highlights, and then we'll turn to a few key passages that you need to know about. All right? So um, I, I asked him about Genesis chapter 2. I said, what do you do with the creation story? It seems pretty clear, okay, that God designed things to work between a man and a woman. Yeah, if you want to flip on the backside, we can do that. All right, and so one of his arguments was, look, the Bible's just been misunderstood. The same as the article that I read you a while ago, this guy said, the Bible's just been misunderstood. So he said, look, Genesis chapter 2 tells us about God creating Adam and Eve, man and woman, because that's how procreation happens, and that's how the human species was propagated. Since homosexuals don't reproduce, it's not an important part of the story, so God left that out. I was like, okay, that sounds kind of weak, All right, but let's move on. So then we moved on to Genesis chapter 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't have time to recap that story if you're not familiar with it. The notes are there. You can read Genesis 19 and then go. All right? But if you're familiar with the story, you kind of know how things shake out right like the angels through a series of events end up at the house it's really got this creepy weird horror feel to it right like we're going to stay in the center of town and he goes don't stay in the center of town right and you just cue the weird like mike myers jason friday the 13th music like it, right, just weird, okay? And so don't stay in the house, which that's a clue. that some, I mean, don't don't stay here. Or come to my house. Don't stay in the center of town. So it's this really weird thing that happens, all right? So they come to the house, right? The men in the city knock on the door and say, hey, bring those guys out so that we can have sex with them. And so I, I was like, that sounds pretty clear to me. He says, yeah, but if you go back to the Old Testament and go back to the word uh, in the Hebrew, the, 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 the Hebrew word that's translated to have sex in some translations really means to know. And so they were just concerned that these guys were here to cause trouble, and they just wanted to make sure that these men who were in Lot's house, who we know were angels, but those, the, those men were there, they just didn't want any harm to come to their city. Right? And that was his explanation. And I was like, you know, I, again, I wasn't there to argue with him. I just wanted to hear where he was coming from. I wanted to grab his point of view. But the short answer to that, and it's in your notes, but the short answer to that is, yes, that word means to know, but in, that, but in the kind of context it in, it's almost always had sexual connotation to it. And if you know The rest of the story, what's Lot's reaction? What does he say? He says, don't do this thing that's wrong or evil, but then he... And this is not what's called prescriptive. This isn't the right response. But what does he do? If you know the story, what does he do? Yeah, he says, no, no, take my daughters instead. All right, bad answer. Okay, that's the wrong answer. And so the question would come up if these guys were here just to make sure, like, hey... Lot, you got some weird people in your house, man. We don't know these guys. We just make sure they're not going to mess up our city. They're not going to break in the store and steal the bread. And, and Lot goes, no, 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 no. But here, have my daughter. It doesn't make sense in the context, okay? It's really weird what happens if the context is to know, like they want to intellectually know these guys. But they don't want to intellectually know these guys. They want to physically know these guys, okay? Uh, Leviticus 18.22, very clear, very clear. All right, man shall not lie with a man, he lies with a woman, for that is detestable in the sight of the Lord. So I was like, in my my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I can't wait to see what he's got to say for Leviticus 18.22. Well, here's the deal. He pulls out the same card everybody else pulls out. Guess what? That's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. You don't live under the Old Testament anymore. All right? There's also an Old Testament law that says don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Is that a problem for now? Is that, I mean, is that really an issue for you? Okay, do you? Are you careful of that? There's an Old Testament law that says don't wear any clothing made of two types of material. So if my shirt's 50% cotton, 50% polyester, did I sin this morning? Because that's in the Old Testament, right? And so there's a lot of confusion about how how to handle Old Testament law. And without getting all the detail, here's how you handle that. You handle it like this. Basic rule of Bible interpretation, by the way, I paid a lot of money to learn this at, at Bible College, uh, at OBU and seminary, so on the way out, if you want to take a love offering to help pay for my school loans, it's all, you're welcome to do that, but it's all free on the surface, okay? I paid a lot of money to learn what I'm fixing to tell you in the next 15 seconds. Basic rule of Bible interpretation, especially coming out of the Old Testament. What does it mean and why does it say that in that context? What's the principle that's there? And then you flip to the New Testament and does the New Testament have anything to say about that? Okay, so what's the context of Leviticus 18? It's all about, almost all about sexual purity because Le- the whole book of Leviticus, if you want to sum it up in one word, is this holiness. He's teaching Israel how to be holy in his presence, how to be a holy nation. And part of that, not all of it, but a part of that, one piece of that holiness puzzle, is sexuality. And so Leviticus eighteen, if you look at a Bible, don't turn there now. But if you look at a Bible and you have headings in your Bible, it it'll, it'll relate something about sexuality because it deals with all kinds of ways uh, to be unholy in sexuality. And so God spells this out for them because part, part, not all, part of their sexual or part of their identity as a people of God will involve sexuality. All right, and so He lays this out. So you flip over to the New Testament, and let's do that. Does the New Testament have anything to say about that? I'm so glad you asked. Romans chapter 1. Let's go there. Nobody have any questions yet? No? All right. We're just rolling along. All right. Either I'm that good or you're scared. I'm not sure which. Listen, all it takes is one to ask the question, and then it opens the floodgates. All right? So be, be bold. Be the first one if you're not clear. So Romans chapter 1. Let me give you a a quote-unquote negative example before we get to this. What would be a positive example? By positive, I mean reaffirming. So in the Old Testament, right, they're told certain things they can't eat. And one of the things that they can't eat is pig, all right? So living in today's time, I love a bacon cheeseburger. You can keep the meat. Just bring the bacon, all right? I love bacon. Old Testament, it's not supposed to do that. So why can I now, as someone who believes the Old Testament is the word of God, how, how can I eat bacon on my cheeseburger in a good clean conscience? Well, very thankfully, we have Acts chapter 10 to thank for that. Thank you for Acts chapter 10. Okay, Where God says all foods are clean. Ding, ding, ding. Bacon, pork, have at it. All right, sausage, it's all yours. Okay, So that's, that's a quote-unquote negative example where you see something we're told not to do in the Old Testament, all right. Jews were told not to do, but you get to the New Testament and you find out that's a law that doesn't apply anymore. All right, So let's flip the other way. You have this Leviticus 18.22. What do you do with that? Romans chapter 1. Does the New Testament have anything to say about living a homosexual lifestyle? It does. And here's what it says, Romans chapter 1. Uh, let's start. Let me give you context for time's sake. Paul is basically talking about how all creation is in rebellion to God. All right. And there comes a time when people... Where God allows people, and he says, okay, listen, I've told you it's wrong, but if that's what you want, then I'll let you go your own way. But realize there's consequences that come with going your way, not my way. All right? And so Paul has laid this out, and now he's going to give a couple of examples of what it looks like for God to turn somebody over to their sin and to let them live in their sin, all right? Apart from him. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed for us. Our... So in other words, Paul says, Look, there comes a time where with our false idols, no matter what those idols are, that we just naturally worship those false idols, and there comes a time where God goes, Hey, if that's what you want, man, you can have it. I'm I'm here if you want me. But you could yeah, you can have it if you think that's the way you re, that you really want it. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. That's the second time we've seen that phrase. We saw it again in verse 24. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So Paul says, man is in rebellion against God. He says, one way you see that is they go against the created order. He says, women exchange natural sexual relations for men to have sexual relations with women. This is the only place in the Bible that female homosexuality is called out, by the way. Is seen. Every other time it deals with male homosexuality. But this is the one case where you have uh, the idea of what we would term lesbianism talked about in scripture. Okay? But then he goes on to say not just female people acting on female homosexuality is the way people show that they're in direct rebellion to God when they live that lifestyle. But he also says that for men. And the men likewise gave up natural relations. That's, that's the implication there is natural sexual relations with women. And were consumed with passion or lust for one another. So I asked the pastor, I was like, Romans chapter 1, that seems really clear to me, man. And he said, but here's the thing. He says, if you read it, especially the translation he was using, he says, it talks about men being inflamed with lust. He said, the idea there is promiscuity, having multiple sexual partners. He said, I've been committed to the same man for 14 years. He said, this passage does not apply to me. If you weren't familiar with biblical interpretation, he might could sell you on that. Because that's the nutshell version. But he made what would sound like on the surface a pretty convincing case. And there was a lot of issues with the things he had to say from a Bible interpretation standpoint. But just on the surface, he could make a good case for somebody who didn't know any better. Okay? Especially if he didn't understand the context of Romans 1 and what's happening. But is that the only place? It's not. First Corinthians 6. Turn over a few more pages. First Corinthians chapter 6. Let me preface this. Paul, the writer of Corinthians, is well known for writing what he calls vice lists. Okay? These lists of people who are caught up and are living certain sinful lifestyles. And he says because they live that way, it shows that they're not a child of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what's very important to know about this verse. Because as you read this verse, you will see yourself in this verse. Because there's a pretty good list of sins in here. And I've never met anybody who hasn't committed at least one of these sins. So the temptation when you come to these vice lists is to go, uh-oh, I've done that. Yes, you have. Okay, But in the original language, the tense that's used in the, in the Greek is a tense that implies this ongoing rebellious lifestyle. So it doesn't have the idea that Paul, when we read this, that Paul says people who committed these sins one time will not inherit the kingdom of God. What he's talking about in the original language is people who over and over and over and over fly in the face of God and say, "I don't care what God says; I'm going to live how I want." Okay, Paul says that's the people he's talking about. Those are people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. But it's not because they committed that one particular sin over and over again; it's because they just have sin in general that separates them from God. You with me? Okay. So when you see yourself in this list, don't freak out. It was kind of like um, I have a uh, my, my before I. God called me in the ministry. I was on a completely different track. So the first time I went to college, I got a a degree in psychology. And one of the most interesting classes I took was uh, abnormal psychology, which was really an interesting class. But I'll never forget, the professor got up on the first day, and he said, let me just warn you, we're going to talk about some really weird, strange behaviors in here. And he says, by the end of the semester, as we go through this for the next four months, every one of you are going to hear us talk about a particular behavior, and you're going to go, uh-oh, that's me. I've done that. He said, don't freak out, okay? He says, everybody does things that are sort of somewhat behaviorally weird. He said, that's not the kind of abnormal psychology we're talking about here. All right, it's kind of the same with Paul. All right, Paul's not talking about these one-time sins. Paul's talking, or, or even people who sort of get off track for a while, he's talking about people who they just openly and fly in the face of God with their sin and say, I don't care. I'm gonna live how I want. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Well, um, Or do you not know that the unrighteous... That's the ungodly. Okay, remember, if you have Christ, you're righteous. That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither they're sexually immoral. That's heterosexual sin, by the way. That's any sex outside of marriage. Okay, the Greek word there is pornea, where we get our word, say it, pornography from. Yeah, okay, so it's a sexual immorality, not just dealing with pornography, but dealing with heterosexual sin. Okay. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay. So here you have another place where Paul says those who practice this. Now, a great question I got asked a couple of months ago. I've never, in probably ten years of going around teaching on this, I'd finally nobody had ever asked this until about two months ago. So let me point it out to you because it was a brilliant question. I'm glad somebody had the nerve to just raise their hand in the middle of a big group and ask. Do you have a translation that says something different other than practice homosexuality? Does anybody have one that's different? Homosexual sinners, sinners, homosexual sinners, offenders, homosexual offenders. What'd you say? Sodomites. Anybody have a different one? Effeminate. Okay. Men who have sex with men, all right? Anybody have a different one? The translation that I use, I chose because it, it skews a little bit more toward the, 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 a literal translation. Bible translation is really, really tricky depending on what you're doing a particular translation for. But the one I'm using says so practice homosexuality. But even though it's usually a fairly literal translation, here's the thing. If you look in the original language, the Greek, the word practice is not there. Okay? And so somebody asked a great question. Why do some translations say practice and some do not? There's a really technical answer. I put it on the sheet, but let me sum it up for you in about 20 seconds. In the original language, there's actually two words here, two different terms for homosexuality. All right? Uh, Let let me say this very tactfully without being graphic. Um, The two words that are used one is the partner that is the giver, one is the partner that is the receiver. You with me on that? Okay, without having to draw a picture or anything? You with me? Okay, all right. So there's two words in the original Greek language when Paul discusses homosexuality in this passage. So what translations do is they find a way to convey the idea that those two words are dealing with two guys who are practicing homosexuality, all right? And so the version I use says practice homosexuality. There are other, there are, as we've seen, okay, there are other ways to translate that, but they all get across the same idea, Right. So if somebody were to ask you, "Are you have a translation, and you're like, mine doesn't say practice homosexuality, that's the reason why. And again, if you want to know the Greek words and all that, I put that in the notes for you just in case you really kind of want to see how that breaks down. But And that, this was the argument the pastor gave to me. He's like, well, it doesn't say practice homosexuality. It says this Greek word, and it looks like Paul made that word up, and we don't really know what it means. Okay, But it's translated from a Greek version of the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, that literally means to, to bed a male. You with me? okay? And so, if you need help with that, let me know. I don't want with the crowd. I don't want to go into all that since there's little ears around. But, okay, to bed a male, a male bedding another male, okay? Not bedding like money, but B-E-D, all right? And so, that's the idea that's there behind those Greek words. So, that's the reason you have some of those different translations. For time's sake, I'll skip the last one, but it's on your sheet. 1 Timothy 1, it's another list of Paul where Paul mentions the term again, practicing homosexuality. So, the question comes up, does the Bible teach that living an active homosexual lifestyle, is that still wrong? Yes, it is. Okay. You can debate some of the Old Testament passages all you want, but using that, what's called the principalizing bridge, going from the Old Testament to the New Testament, all right, you very much see this idea in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, Jude 7 is another one we won't get into, but Jude 7 is uh, an, a, a, an allusion back to a passage in Ezekiel that talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, and so does the Bible deal with it? Absolutely it does. So let me stop there for just a second before we get on for just a couple of minutes to the born that way question. Huh? Seven minutes. I can do that. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. All right, we can do this. Any questions about that before we kind of fly through a few other things? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Okay. The, 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 the question was Did the pastor that I talked with um, acknowledge that he was wrong in being in that ongoing relationship? He did not. He sees nothing wrong with it because, um, and I've got, a, I think I may have a little bit in the notes, but his explanation, of course, all the Old Testament passages, that's Old Testament. That was his blanket statement, okay, which is a really bad Bible interpretation because it basically does away with the whole Old Testament. It says we don't need anything in the Old Testament anymore, all right? Without the Old Testament, there'd be no New, New Testament. So there's some real problems with his Bible interpretation. But his blanket was, no, because it's Old Testament. All right, tell me about Romans 1. Well, it says inflame with lust for one another. I'm in a committed, monogamous relationship. All right, so. No, he thought he was completely fine. Because he was in a committed Loving, that's your key word, committed, loving, monogamous relationship. So his his explanation for Romans chapter 1 was, I'm in a loving relationship. I'm not inflamed with lust for a whole bunch of guys. I'm committed and loving to one person. That goes back to the idea of love is the greatest good. Okay. That's part of where that comes into play. Uh, the 1 Corinthians 6 and the, and the 1 Timothy, because both those were written by Paul, there is a little argument there by some about what exactly that Greek word means. So I think if you go back to the Greek Old Testament version, it's very clear what it means. But he wanted to parse the word and say, well, there's no real way you can know what it means. So I'm not going to base my whole life on something that's a question mark in Scripture. All right? This is basically what he was saying. And so he thinks he's completely okay as far as God's okay with the lifestyle that he's living. Even though he wasn't married. Yes. Well, and here's the thing. And they're somewhat right on this. You don't have to be married in the law's eyes to be married in the eyes of God. Okay? So even though they weren't legally married, in their eyes, God had joined them together. All right? And, and there, is something, there is something to that thought, though that's a bad thought. And, and let me clarify that. What I mean by that is I've had some people say, okay, well, now that homosexual marriage is legal, then it's all Okay? God's not obligated to recognize man's law. God is God. We don't dictate God's laws. God tells us how he designed things to live. So just because man's law has made it okay doesn't mean God's law is going to be okay with it. He was making that same argument, but from reverse. He was saying, look, man's law doesn't say it's okay, but God says it's okay because I'm in a loving, monogamous, committed relationship for life, which he was basically saying we're married is what he was saying in God's eyes. That was his way of looking at things. Okay, good question. Any other questions on that before we answer a few other questions? All right, moving right along. Flip over uh, to look down at the bottom. See where I have Jude seven for the First Corinthians six passage and the First Timothy one eight through eleven passage and Jude seven. You see that? Who's got it? Looks we'll it's like wave a hand in the air like you just don't care, something like that. Okay, all right, good. So you'll see underneath Jude 7, I have two stars or two asterisks. See that? Very important. We need to make a very important clarification at this point. What is being condemned here and what's being called sinful is not someone feeling attracted to the same sex. Okay? There is a difference between practicing homosexuality and having what many have termed same-sex attraction. What is condemned and what is sinful is someone living an active homosexual lifestyle. There is a big difference between the two, and when we discuss the issue, we must differentiate between the two. Next page. So the question comes up. Can someone struggle with homosexuality or have same-sex attraction and still be a follower of Christ, absolutely. If struggling with the sin condemns me or damns me to hell, then none of us have a hope. Because if I was to tell you that in 19 years of marriage I never found another woman attractive other than my wife, I would be lying through my teeth. But it's what I do with that and what I do with those thoughts and what I do with those feelings that make all the difference. You with me on that? Okay. So just because somebody feels attracted to somebody regardless of gender does not condemn them at all. Next, can someone who struggles with heterosexual sins still be a follower of Jesus? What's condemned in Scripture are people acting upon their sins, or in this case, just as heterosexual fantasies would be a sin, so would homosexual ones. All right. And then I've got that important clarification from Romans 6 that we talked about. All right, This is a big misnomer in the church in general. The attitude has been because somebody feels attracted to people of the same sex or to both male and female, that they can't be saved. And that's wrong. Okay? Who I feel attracted to sexually is not the issue. What's the issue of my salvation? We already covered this, by the way. What's the issue of my salvation? Say it. No, say it loud. What is it? Yeah, it's a holiness issue because of my sin. All right? Whatever the sin is, if I did not know Christ and I was addicted to heterosexual pornography, that would be a sin that separates That's part of my sin that separates me from God. It's just that it's a heterosexual sin, not a homosexual sin. But both of those are sins. Sexual sins are part of my sin problem that separate me from God. You with me on that? Okay. It's a huge difference between the two. So what you want to do is, just as with any other sin... You don't want to deal with the sin. You want to deal with the. I mean, you don't want to deal with the particular sin. You want to deal with the sin issue. If I meet somebody who's a pathological liar, I'm not going to say, "Hey, you got to stop lying before you come to Jesus." Right? What I'm going to say? I'm going to say, "Come to Jesus and let Jesus work that sin out of you." If I have a student who's who doesn't know Christ and they come to me and they say, "I'm addicted to pornography," you know what I'm going to say? Okay, yes, we need to talk about that. But your main issue is not pornography. Your main issue is you're separated from Christ. And when you come to know Christ, he'll start working some of those desires. We'll pray and sanctification begins, right? And you work some of those desires out of the heart. Somebody comes to me and says, hey, I have same-sex attraction. And my first question is not going to be, tell me about that. My first question is going to be, tell me about your relationship with Christ. Because if you don't know Christ, your big issue is not who you're physically attracted to. Your big issue is you don't have a relationship with Jesus, and then when they come to know Jesus, we'll start saying, okay, now, the next step that you come to know Jesus is, let's talk about you following Christ on a daily basis. What are some of the sins that you deal with and struggle with? And then we start working with them, discipling them, letting the Spirit work those things out of their heart. You with me? Does that make sense? A lot of times we're like, mm, pornography or mmm, adultery or mm, homosexuality. Oh, I just can't, no, I can't do that. Right. But you got to, Jesus is the issue. Right? So that's where you want to take them back to before you deal with everything else. All that stuff is heart issue, all rooted in sin. And the sin's got to be taken care of. The general sin's got to be taken care of. Because if you don't, even though they may quit acting upon a certain impulse or sin for a while, they'll go right back to it. Why? Because the root, the heart of that sin hasn't been changed. So you've got to get at the root of the sin. It's like mowing my yard. I can go out and cut the weeds. I'm going to cut them once a week, or I can go spray weed killer on my yard, get to the root, and the weed's going to be gone. It's trying to fix somebody's behavior. It's cutting the root. I mean, cutting the, cutting the top, right? It's going to grow back up because you didn't get to the root. i got to get to the root. The sexual sin is the weed. The root is the fact I don't have a relationship with Christ in the first place. I've got sin. I got separated from God. I don't have the power of the Spirit. I don't have the Holy Spirit within me. I don't have sanctification going on because I don't know Christ in the first place. So we have to be very careful not to single out certain sins, one worse than the other, because all sin separates. Apparently, based on the way Scripture is worded, there are certain sins that God finds more detestable, are more repulsive than other sins, but still sin is sin. Right, As far as it separates us from God, whether I stole a piece of gum or whether I physically murdered somebody, my sin separates me from God. So I've got to deal with that. Last thing we got to deal with real quick. I know we're bumping up against it. Are people born This is the way it's this is the way it's often phrased. Are people born gay? All right. So, right now, that's an important phrase. Right now there is absolutely no scientific or biological evidence that people are born homosexuals. Okay? There's none. None. They tried Researchers have tried. There's a guy named Simon LeVay who about 20 years ago claimed he found, or 30 years ago, claimed he found a homosexual gene. But he got exposed and a few years later came out and admitted he falsified every piece of evidence that he put out. Okay, There's no biological cause that's ever been found. I don't think there ever will be for a couple of reasons. One is because you have a whole lot of people who at one time dealt with same-sex attraction or were involved in the homosexual lifestyle who came out of that lifestyle. And some of them now married to somebody of the opposite sex, opposite gender, have had kids. You, you can't change DNA. My eyes are blue. I can put contacts in and make them look green, but did I really change anything? No, my eyes are still white color. You, no, you can answer. It's not a trick question. My eyes are still white color? Blue. Why? Because it's in my DNA. can't change that. You have a whole bunch of people. Let me give you, I don't have time to tell you story. Great story. Look up this article. Google it on the internet. My train wreck conversion. It was on Christianity Today about two or three years ago. Fabulous story of a lady who was very liberal, very deeply mired in the, in the lesbian homosexual lifestyle. Practicing, all right? And then she encountered Christ and everything changed. It's called my train wreck conversion. You can't change DNA, yeah, you may have a few people who would say they came out but were still struggling secretly. But you got way too many people, way too many testimonies, way too many stories for it to be DNA-based. But what if someday, what if someday there is a biological cause found for same-sex attraction and homosexuality? Does that change anything? Well, let me ask you this. Researchers say they have identified an alcohol gene. Somebody that predisposes you toward alcohol, okay, a gene in certain people. So let's say in my family I have the alcohol gene, all right, and I've got it. So I get drunk one night and go raging crazy at my wife and kids, and we end up out in the yard hollering and screaming, and I'm just beating the tar out of them. And the neighbors hear it. They call the cops. The cops come. They arrest me. I spend the night in the jail. I go before the judge the next day, and the judge is just talking to me, and I'm like, whoa, time out, judge not my fault. got the alcohol gene. Predisposed. It's in my DNA. Can't handle it. Not my fault. The judge going to look at me and say, why didn't you tell me that last night before they arrested you, man? Uncuff him. Let him go. Is he going to say that? No. What's he going to say? He's going to say, then, sir, you of all people should know. Stay away from it. Shouldn't even have it in your house. Shouldn't be around it. Just because I would be genetically predisposed to something does not excuse my actions because I can still make the choice to act upon those impulses or not. So God's not going to say, oh, well, okay, you know, genetics genetics over holiness. Right? God's not going to do that. He's going to say, hey, you didn't have to act upon those things. Why? Because you're not who you are because of who you're sexually attracted to. You are who you are because you're a child of God. So you don't have to act upon those impulses. A great little book if you're interested on this. Very small, incredible book called Is God Anti-Gay? It's by a, by a British pastor in the UK. His name is Sam Allberry. There's all kinds of books on homosexuality in the Bible. What the beauty of this book is Sam has same-sex attraction. He struggles with it. He feels no sexual leanings toward women whatsoever. He is only attracted to men, as far back as he can remember. But he's celibate. He chooses not to act upon that. He says, I am a child of God. I am not who I am because of who I am drawn to sexually. So he lives a celibate lifestyle. His church is very aware of it, and it's very moving to read how his church rallies around him. He doesn't have any family doesn't have a wife, doesn't have kids. So holidays are a very lonely time for him. So what does his church do? His church makes sure that he has some place to go on Christmas morning. There's a family in his church that will invite him over for Christmas dinner and to hang out with their family all day long. It's a beautiful story of community for a guy who struggles with a certain sin that many want to alienate, but he says, look, I'm a follower of Christ. This is an inclination I have, but it does not determine who I am, and he chooses not to act upon it. He he breaks down some of the Bible scriptures and different things. But it's really interesting to read. It's one thing for me as a guy who's been married for 19 years with two kids to stand up here and talk about this. And I've had people say that to me to my face. And I agree. It is. I can't identify with it the same way like somebody Sam can. So it's an incredible way to see from somebody else's viewpoint who's in the thick of those temptations, those inclinations. Last thing is this. And this is on your sheet. The debate is usually, do people make the choice or are they born that way? I think there's a better third option. Okay? Hear me, please. This is, a, this is a broad generalization. I'm painting with as big a paintbrush as you can get because not everybody's going to fall under this category. But I think there's a third option that's better. Sam talks about this. Some other stuff I've read have talked about this. All the research seems to back up this third option is the best one. Because very rarely will you meet somebody who's in the middle of the homosexual lifestyle, who's practicing, or who feels same-sex attraction but doesn't want anything to do with it, doesn't like it. But most will say, I didn't choose this. I don't remember waking up one morning and going, hey, this is how I want to live. There was an actress a couple of years ago, Cynthia Nixon. I don't know if you know her or not. She's a redheaded headed actress. Um, she came out, said she was a lesbian, and she said, in interviews, she said, "I just decided this is who i 'm going to be i wasn 't going to be heterosexual anymore. That would be a homosexual in Hollywood. The LGBT community ate her alive for saying it was a mental choice that she made like she flipped a switch I mean they it was interesting to watch them turn on one of their own, so to speak. But the third better option seems to be somebody is made or I like the word shaped that there's something psychologically that is just not." I don't want to say this in a bad way because I don't mean to sound a bad way, but it's just wired a little bit different. And there's a wide, and I've got examples in here for you. There's a wide variety of of reasons. It can be physical trauma, it can be sexual trauma, it can be environments they were raised in. But one of the things that we're learning is this seems to be much more an, an issue of the mind than it does of genetics or than it does of choice, okay? Don't hear me say somebody is mentally ill if they have same-sex attraction. I'm not saying that at all. But what a lot of folks are finding who struggle with same-sex attraction and then they overcome that attraction or they find ways to deal with it is that sometimes there are things in the past that have sort of wired their brain from early on to be that way. Okay, Again, that's a very broad brush and generalization. That is not going to fit everybody. But sometimes, a lot of times, it seems like there's something in the past that has helped shape. And, and wire that, all right. So please read that because I don't want to. I don't want you to misunderstand that. But that's a big question we need to at least address for just a few minutes. So, any final questions? Because I'm way over my time. And I want to be good and nice. Follow the rules. Any questions or thoughts? You're very quiet and serious. I'm not sure if that's good or bad. You're scaring me a little bit. You're like. The key word, that's a great nutshell version. The key word here is practice. Like anything else, that's what will get you into trouble. Whether you're tempted to steal and then you do steal, whether you're tempted to look at pornography and you don't look at pornography, whether you're tempted to have heterosexual sex outside of marriage, commit adultery, or whether it's same sex attraction. Practice is your key word. All right? Good. Huh? Yeah, thoughts are huge. You've got to take those thoughts captive to Christ. The the example I often use with my students is this. If I'm flipping channels late at night and I just can't sleep, whatever, right, and I'm just flipping channels, and I run across, say, a sex scene that's got female nudity in it, there's a part of me as a guy that, honestly, my first thought before I really have time to think about, my first thought is stop and look, right? But there's an immediate part of me that goes can't, and you just keep going, all right? It's what you do with those thoughts, it's that, that first-time temptation. Everybody has different weaknesses. Enemy attacks us in different ways, he, right? He's on the search. The Bible's very clear. He's on the search prowling around looking for ways to trip us up. So I've got to be careful what I do with those things. But it's not a sin for me at first to go, yep, oh, nope. Okay, I've got to, I've got to be careful what I do with those thoughts. All right, so let's do this as we close. Just so gonna take a couple of minutes and let you do this. we will have about 60 seconds of silent prayer. And this is what i like for you to do. If this is something you struggle with, man, pray for yourself. Pray for God to help you. Because I've talked to a lot of students over the years, a lot of adults over the years, who carry around a ton of guilt because they've been told all kinds of false things or because they've been kicked around by some folks who know that this is a struggle for them and there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of guilt that goes with that. So maybe you just need to pray and ask God for boldness to help you talk with somebody tonight if you need to talk with somebody. If this isn't an issue for you, but you know somebody who does struggle and deal with this, pray for them. Pray about how you can minister to them. The worst thing that we can do is allow those in the dark who don't know Christ continue to be in the dark. We need to share Christ with them, as difficult as that may be sometimes, to share with them. So maybe you know somebody who's dealing with this, and you, maybe God wants you to begin praying through having a difficult conversation not just about their lifestyle but the fact that they're separated from God in general but they will probably ask some difficult questions along the way that may have to do with this issue so let me just ask you to bow your head and you can just pray right where you are however you want to pray and then I'll close it out and turn it back over to to James thanks for allowing me to be here tonight God, thank you that you are full of love and compassion. And thank you that even though we can never make it to you in our sin, you make a way for us to be found holy and righteous in your sight. And I pray a day would not go by that we do not, those of us who know that righteousness and forgiveness in Christ, take that for granted. This is one of those difficult issues because it's so emotional and so misunderstood, but certainly an emotional one for so many folks, so many families. It's easy to sit in a church and say, Yes, this is what Scripture says. But when we are around friends we care deeply about, family members we care deeply about who deal with this, we want to justify it and make an exception. Help us to um, love those who deal with this um, in a way that is biblically right and is a way that points them to Jesus. Help us not to focus on any particular sin, but if they don't know Christ, just the general sin that's in their lives that separates them from you. The big picture of all the sins, our sin nature. And even in our own lives, there may or may not be some here who Uh, Struggle with same sex attraction, but certainly there are other sexual temptations that bombard many that are here. So I pray, even before they talk to others, that you would help them to deal with any sexual sin that's in their life. Give us the courage and boldness to talk to folks. Help us to be wise and engaging the world. Thank you for your truth, your scripture, that it doesn't change. Thank you that we can rest in the fact it's not been misinterpreted in the past. And suddenly, 6,000 years later, we've been greatly enlightened and everybody who's come before us is wrong. Thank you that there is a standard for truth in all areas, not just in this one. So maybe we wise. Thank you for a church who uh, wants to equip their people in what the Bible teaches, even on difficult issues. Not afraid to touch some of those subjects. discuss some of those things so as we go into the world help us to be wise give us boldness for you for your name we pray amen